Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got my friend Brian Rimza on the telephone. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jay. Yourself? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, as we sit right now, we're August 14th. Uh, we've got deer seasons all across, archery deer seasons all across the West opening up. We've got some elk seasons opening up, antelope. Um, you know, 2019 fall season is upon us. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I am jealous of those individuals that have uh, some of those coveted tags out there. I don't have any tags in Arizona this year. Um, but uh, for those of you who have tags, shaping up to be one of the best years I've probably ever seen. Yeah, you know what's so crazy is we had, you know, pretty widespread across the southwest. We had good winter moisture. Um, but to be honest, speaking about Arizona specifically, like our monsoons just have not been that great. Um, although the country from everything everybody's telling me, the countryside, the grass, the antler growth, you know, everything's looking fantastic. But when you look at the charts, like we haven't had much summer moisture. I was sure hoping that we could put, you know, an unbelievable winter on top of, you know, an unbelievable monsoon season. Um, but we're, it looks like we're not going to get that. Um, going into this archery deer season, with the way the conditions are right now, I mean, I think it's 113 in Phoenix today. Um, speaking specifically to those Arizona deer hunters, archery deer hunters, what are your thoughts going into the season, archery deer? You know, archery deer, uh, for the over-the-counter guys, and, I mean, also the guys up in the strip and stuff like that, it's kind of a – you really watch the weather the next couple weeks because, you know, if you're – kind of taking advantage of the water sources and sitting water because it's hot in, the, in some of these elevations. You know, it's just dependent on what these monsoons do. I mean, a lot of times these monsoons will kick off, you know, that week of the archery deer hunt, and, you know, the monsoon's super spotty, so some spots may get water, a ton of water, and some spots may get no water. You know, a couple of years ago when I killed a buck in uh, 21 on the archery deer hunt, I shot the buck on opening day, and I hiked, I backpacked in the day before the hunt started, and I got a lit, I had a pretty hefty storm coming through, but it just dropped a few raindrops, and it kind of missed the area that I was at, and I was able to kill my target buck the next morning, and literally every day for the next two weeks, it just dumped rain in that spot, and made it completely, you know, unaffected to sit water, and I just happened to capitalize on that, and so, I mean, most guys who tend to run cameras and stuff like that this time of year um, to kind of get an inventory of what bucks are there, kind of understand that, you know, you've got to play the monsoon. You've got to figure out where the water's hitting hard and where the water's not going to hit. And kind of, if you're going to sit, you've got to take advantage of that. Um, obviously, the guys on the strip, you know, if it's a dry year on the strip, it can be very beneficial to some for those individuals who are going to sit water. I mean, I would imagine that most of your archery hunters on the strip are praying for little to no rain, whereas your rifle tag holders on the strip are probably playing praying for it to uh, rain cats and dogs so that all these big deer don't get killed off water. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about water. You mentioned that coos deer that you shot on opening day. Um, you have shot some very big deer um, with your bow, uh, both coos deer and mule deer. Um, but you've had, you know, you obviously shot that 233-inch giant um, last year on the strip. But... You know, that 
what, 15 years ago or so, 12, 15 years ago, maybe not quite that long, um, you shot at just a whopper buck uh, with your bow sitting water. Talk a little bit about, watch. you mentioned watching the weather, and what kind of windows do you look for? I mean, obviously it probably depends on whether you're hunting the desert or, or the pines or what have you, but, I mean, do you look for a stretch of three or four days? If it's dry, then, then it's you know, absolutely sit sun up to sun down, or what's kind of your thought process? I mean, uh, my success over the years on deer, whitetail, and mule deer with my bow has come from my patience and being able to sit water. Um, I've killed both whitetails and mule deer spot and stock, but my biggest bucks by far have come off of water, and it's just because I'm patient and able to capitalize, and I typically have time. Um, a lot of times, guys will identify a big buck coming to a water source or a salt source or something like that, but inevitably they their schedule gets in the way and they don't have the time to devote to, to fill that buck. I mean, you have to be able to capitalize on the weather on these early hunts. And I mean, so, you know, my big whitetail in 2009, I sat for three days, didn't have it, him come in or my, another target buck come in, and then we got, you know, it had stayed dry and I was able to run up in the middle of the week and kill that buck on just a, you know, whirlwind spur trip in the middle of the week and I shot him in the middle of the day. Um, one of the things on water, you know, my experience with whitetails is a lot of the bucks tend to come in in the middle of the day, which is not, uh, not normally what you'd expect. You know, it's not the same quite in my experience with mule deer and and elk, you know, they like to come early morning, late evenings. But a lot of the bucks, the whitetail bucks I've killed have come in in the middle of the day. My biggest buck came in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The last buck I just killed came in at 1. Um, so I, I, I'm not super concerned about getting into, this, into my blind if I'm hunting whitetails in the dark. Um, I think it's more important to be able to pitch your way into the blind, making as little noise as possible and disturbing as little um, of the environment around the water as possible. And so, I mean, I honestly will get into the, my whitetail blinds a lot of times at like 8 o'clock in the morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'll typically sit till 3 or 4, depending on what my cameras are showing. Occasionally, I'll, I'll sit later, because um, I have had a big buck come in at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. But it just seems like those whitetails really don't come in in that last hour of light and that last or first hour of light. Whereas the mule deer that I've killed and the bucks that my wife has killed, you know, they tend to, a lot of times will come in, not as often at first light, but they will come in at last light. My big buck I killed last year came in at last light, was super skittish, and I was able to get him killed. Uh, the buck that Nicole has killed a couple years ago came in right at last light, and, uh, you know, she was able to get him killed. So it's kind of different on uh, based on the species that you're hunting, in my opinion, and kind of what part of the state you're hunting. Obviously, if you're hunting whitetails in, you know, the central part of the state, Unit 8, or up in the pines in 23, or the pines in 22, it might be a little different, but if you're hitting, hunting that low desert stuff, you know, it can be super effective if you can if you can manage the heat to hunt that lower desert stuff. You could have 30, 40 deer a day coming in, um, and it just makes for a much more enjoyable sit when you're having lots and lots of action. As much, you know, you run trail cameras and stuff on years when, um, you know, you're, you're focused on over-the-counter archery deer in this August season. 
Do you notice that the deer, let's say over the last two months, do they change their pattern right up before the season starts? Or do you notice that most of the coos deer specifically, you can kind of get a buck kind of pattern and, and, you know, know within an hour or two, you know, he comes in every couple of days or what have you. I mean, is there a way to kind of pattern? And if there is, what have you noticed? I mean, I wouldn't say that I can pattern them to like a specific time or even a morning or an evening of them coming in. But what I will say is they generally will stick. If the weather doesn't change, they will generally come in. Either if a buck's coming in every other day, he'll kind of tend to stick to every other day. Or um, if he's coming in every day, a lot of times he may stick to coming in every day. So you just have to kind of be there when he's um, believed to be coming in. And, you, and really that's when it comes down to time. Um, my experience with hunting salt, you know, I've played the salt game a little bit, but I have not been very successful at it. And the one thing I've noticed, noticed with salt is that once the monsoons come, start coming in, the bucks just seem to change their pattern. And I'm not an expert on salt. It's not my expertise at all, but it's just I – that's the one thing I've noticed, especially with mule deer up in units like 3C and 1. Um, you know, you'll get them coming in regularly all through July, and then August the monsoons start to come, and it starts to come to that season, and, like, they're just completely random when they come in, if they come in at all. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your strategy if you're going into this OTC season, and, and we'll talk about some other states as well, but right now let's talk about Arizona um, and, you know, specifically talk about if all of a sudden just rain start pounding, 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 do, you, do your tactics change? Well, I mean, if you're planning on sitting water and it starts dumping rain, you probably shouldn't waste your time sitting water. So, you know, those bucks aren't going to change their patterns drastically, meaning they're not going to move out of the area. Summer bucks are super patternable, so if you can find a big buck, um, in a particular canyon, he's going to be in that canyon unless he gets bumped out by a hunter or a lion or something like that. So it may take you a few days to pick him up, but he's going to be there. And the, with that being said, I mean, it makes it easier to stick, stay put and keep looking for him because these summer bucks, I mean, the benefit to having the early season tags, the youth hunt in Arizona, a lot of them start October 12th. Those are some of the best tags in the state because nobody has really bothered those deer. And if you can find a big one, man, you can usually kill him pretty easily because you know he's going to be in that same canyon somewhere and you just got to spend your time behind the glass turning him up. The other thing is, is if you get lots of rain and the monsoon comes in, generally that'll cool down the temperatures, which will keep these bucks on their feet just a little bit longer, which will help you out and make it a little more enjoyable when you're sitting behind the glass. You talked about when you go into the blind, you sometimes you wait till you know it gets light where you can see and you're not making a bunch of disturbance. I mean, literally, you're just trying to slip into your blind. And historically, have you gone in weeks before, days before, months before, and put up a blind? And how much do you believe in brushing in your blind? Well, I mean, I definitely think on a ground blind, you need to get it in at least a couple weeks in advance. I genuinely will put my blinds in about August 1st. And you run a risk there because if the monsoon comes in and starts dumping rain, then you basically pack the blind in for no reason. I will typically try to use the overhang of a tree or 
cut out a chunk of a bush that I can wedge my blind into, taking into account, you know, where the sun's going to be, how is it going to reflect onto my blind, the wind direction, where do I think the deer are coming in from, and, and I will definitely, definitely brush it in. I mean, I know that there's people out there that have taken ground blinds, popped them up on, a di on a, the dike of a tank and just had a deer walk in without a care in the world and killed it. That's just not been my experience. Um, one of the things that I learned from Dar, uh, our mutual friend, obviously your, your partner for a long time and good friend, is that uh, when I put up a ground blind, I'll submerge that blind in the tank before I put it up. And that I learned that from Dar, and, I, I mean, I think it's one of the best things that I've ever kind of learned to do because, to me, it kind of gives that area or gives that blind the smell of the area, and it takes away any, you know, kind of weird odors that might come with a blind being popped up into an area. Um, so that's, that's something I learned from him. So I won't pop the blind up. I'll just take it, fold it up, sink it in the tank. And it can be a little messy, and it gets, it's going to get you wet. But I'll sink it in that tank, and then I'll pop it up where I want to put it and brush it in and do what I need to do. And it seemed to be pretty darn successful in helping kind of eliminate some of those odors. And so if I'm putting a blind up last minute on a spot that I just found, I'll definitely, definitely do that. Um, so it's just one of the little tricks that I learned from Dar and I do think brushing blinds in is super critical as well as paying attention to where the sun's going to be while you're in the blind. Talk about that a little bit more. Dive into that. Well, I mean, obviously sunrise in the east, that's in the west, you know, a little variation depending on where you're, where you're at, what you're doing. And in a, in a perfect world, you don't want that sun blasting you in the face when you're sitting in that blind because those blinds are not that deep. You get a spotlight shining on you, it's going to be hard to move. Um, and so I really try to pay attention to that, especially on these early hunts. You want as much shade as possible because there's, everyone's been in a ground blind hunting antelope or hunting some barren country where you're just getting beat by the sun and you're roasting in there. A little bit of shade will do, go a long way and make your sit much more enjoyable. Typically, are you sitting on the west side of the tank with the sun at the back of the blind trying to catch any of that afternoon shade, which would be casting, you know, shade east? In other words, it's coming, you know, shining from the west to the east so that Generally, you also, you know, are you typically always on the, on the west side of a tank? Almost always I'm on the west side of the tank because... I'd rather get a little bit of sun blasting me in the morning because that's when I least expect the deer to come in, and I want the sun at my back shining from my blind to the tank so it's kind of in the eyes of the animal if it turns to look at me in the blind. Okay. As a deer approaches in the blind, what do you do? I mean, are you already ready to shoot? Do you let them come in and get settled and start drinking? Talk a little bit about that. I know that giant buck that you shot, that coos buck 10 years ago, I guess it was, or 09, um, that was a pretty good story. Yeah, so, I'm, I mean, deer will come in to water either completely on high alert and super skittish, or they'll just walk right in and get a drink. Uh, the buck I shot in 09 literally walked by my blind at about seven or, <laughs> seven or eight yards and walked straight to the water without a care in the world. 
Um, the buck I shot on the strip last year was extremely skittish when he came in, and it took him probably a good six or seven minutes from when I saw the buck to when he actually got to the water and put his head down. One thing that seems to be a pretty common theme is the bu bucks will always put their head down initially to get a drink, and they'll drink for maybe one to two seconds and then pop their head back up and kind of look around. It's almost like a bluff to see what's going on, to see if anyone's moving. And then once they put their head down that second time, it's usually when they're committed to actually getting a drink. And that's when I try to, you know, come to full draw and make my move and take my shot because I, you know, just like a human, if you're drinking water, your, your, your uh, hearing is a little impacted by the, you know, the slurping or slurping of the water that's coming right. into your, into your mouth. So, I mean, all of that stuff comes, comes in handy and uh, definitely helps you out. I mean, you know right away if a buck's on high alert, and with whitetails in particular and mule deer, you need to pay attention to that um, because I missed probably the biggest buck of my life uh, in 2015 when he came in and was super alert as a buck I was really, I knew a lot about, had a bunch of pictures of, and the buck was 37 yards away, and I even aimed low, and I just caught the very top tuft of his back, and he was able to duck my arrow and get out of there as well. The next year at the same spot, you know, a buck came in, walked right in, hadn't had a care in the world. I shot him at 21 yards, and the buck never even moved. Normally when they come, speak about coos deer and mule deer, talk about, you know, bucks lowering and dropping, you know, jumping the strings, so to speak, um, talk about how much each one drops down and what do you always kind of plan on well i mean mule deer are crazy the buck that i missed in 2015 his entire front leg on his off off side away from me was completely extended out in front of him and flat on the ground with his belly flat on the ground when the arrow got there and so i mean he dropped that buck drops 15 18 inches in a matter of seconds and it was it's really hard to aim low because it just goes against everything that you think of. And, you know, based on the distance is where you got to determine kind of, and, and that the mean of the animal, you have to determine where you're going to aim. I mean, that buck was 37 yards away. I believe I shot, put, shot him for 35 at the bottom of his chest, and he ducked the arrow. I probably should have shot that deer for 30 yards and would have killed him. Um, but, you know, it's just hard to know what exactly is perfect if you know it's a combination of how far the animal is from you and how alert they are i mean if they're alert not alert at all don't have a care in the world i mean you can usually tell just aim you know at the at the heart you know low chest and make a good shot and you're usually good to go you know if the animal's on high alert you you have to at a minimum aim at the bottom of the chest and some of these bucks you need to even aim lower um my mule deer was 63 yards away and was extremely alert. I made what was a good shot. You know, everything was clean when I, when I released the arrow. But that buck had enough time to turn away from me, and the arrow hit him kind of on the point of the shoulder as he was turning away and slid up along his shoulder and ended up burying in his neck. So, I mean, I got lucky um, with a good broadhead choice and things of that nature, and it just worked out for me. And I don't know that there's much you can do for that because you can't, 
you can't figure out what exactly a deer is going to do at 63 yards. You just got to aim and make a great shot and see what happens. Let's talk about your bow setup a little bit. Um, you know, everything from the bow to the string to the sight to the arrows, broadheads, etc. Yeah, right now I'm shooting uh, the new Bowtech Reckoning, and I really, really like the bow. It's been super efficient. I'm shooting it on a comfort setting as opposed to the performance setting just because, you know, I'm a pretty tall guy. I've got a long draw length, so I don't need the extra 10 feet per second that I might get out of the performance setting. Um, I've been real impressed with the bow so far and the way it performs. Uh, and this will be the first season that I actually hunt with it. I just got it maybe three or four months ago. So it's going to get tested pretty quick here because I've got an elk hunt in Utah that I'll be heading out to in a couple weeks. And then I've got a moose hunt in Montana that I'll be heading out to in October. Um, my arrows, I've been shooting gold tip arrows for as long as I can remember. Uh, Tim Gillingham and I are good friends and he's one heck of a hunter. And, you know, I, there's a lot of different great arrows out there with outserts and small diameter shafts. And, you know, I just stick to the pro hunters. They've worked for me for years. Um, and it's just, it's hard for me to change to a thinner diameter shaft and have to change my setup. I just really enjoy shooting the pro hunters. And I mean, I'm shooting a, the 340 spine arrow. It just shoots great. Um, I shoot blazer veins. I've been shooting three flex blazer veins for a long time. Had great success with them. And this year, I finally bit the bullet and decided to go ahead and start shooting Luminox just because it provides just a really cool image um, when you're, you know, taking a shot at an animal and it's good for video and things of that nature. So it was hard to do just because it adds about eight bucks an arrow and then you have to practice with those Luminox because they weigh more than a, than a regular knock. So, you know, it made it a little more expensive, but I think it'll be, it'll pay off in the end. Um, this year for broadheads, I'm doing something a little different. Uh, Dale Perry is the guy who created Gravedigger broadheads, which I've been shooting for a long time, and I've killed a ton of animals with them, probably more animals with a Gravedigger than any other broadhead I've shot before. Came out with a, a couple of new broadheads. Uh, his new company is Evolution Outdoors. And his six-blade head is what I'm shooting. It's called the Jekyll in uh, a 100-grain head. I've been extremely impressed with the flight so far. Um, I've shot it out to 100 yards. It seems to shoot really well. It's a fixed head, and I think it will be real good for elk, and uh, I'm excited to kind of see how it performs um, out there on a, on a big animal, on an elk, and on a moose, and uh, see what we can do from there. I've been pretty partial for both sites to shoot uh, uh, custom bow hunting equipment both sites, which I'm continuing to shoot this year. They're there, uh, I shoot a 510 movable sight, so 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and then my bottom pin is a mover that I can usually get out to about 100 to 110, depending on my setup. And I, I like the movable sight because if you have to take those longer shots, and typically I'm not taking those longer shots on an initial shot on an animal, but if I have to do a follow-up shot on a, an animal that I need to put another arrow in, it's nice to have that ability to do it. And, you know, the one thing I really like about the custom bow equipment sites, or CBE is what it's short for, is uh, they have a metal sight tape program that has been pretty accurate for me, and I really like having a metal sight tape that is held on by two screws. 
because if you get weather, you don't have to worry about the paper side tapes getting all nasty because of the rain. Um, they're easy to interchange in and out, and they seem to be extremely accurate. So I've been really happy with, uh, with that for sure. And then well, quiver-wise, I shoot uh, a tight spot quiver. I've been shooting tight spots for several years. They, they just are good, solid, all-around quiver and they give you the ability to remove the quiver if you want to, if you're shooting out of a blind or a tree stand setting, or even on the ground, if it's something you know you want to take the, the quiver off of to, to make the shot. If you weren't hunting elk and moose, would you be back to using the grave digger, grave digger mechanical or another mechanical, and are you... Did you strictly go to the fixed blade just because of these two hunts that you have specifically coming up? You know, I went to a fix. I wanted to shoot a fixed blade head for moose, um, and I probably don't need to. I mean, it's just my personal preference. The grave digger head I was using is a hybrid, so it's a fixed blade with two expandable blades that expand upon hitting whatever you're shooting at. And I've had good success with them, um, but since the company has gone kind of bigger, the quality control on some of the heads hasn't been quite as good. And, you know, Dale's been always good to me, and the products that he's made have been pretty impressive. So I figured, you know what, I'll give his products a try and, and see how they perform. And so far, I've been pretty impressed. Brian, would you, you know, you're one of the best archers in our state um, and, you know, historically have shot you know, 3D competitive and, you know, a really good archer. But the way I look at it, there's several, it's like people. Um, there's no different. I mean, there's several types of archers. There's the guys that kind of use the equipment they've been using for a long time, and it's really hard to get them to change. And then there's the guy that, I mean, literally every week he's got a different bow, different arrows, different broadhead, different strings, different sights. Where do you fall in that category of, of archers? Well, I mean, I appreciate the compliment. There's a lot of great archers in the state. I've been pretty fortunate to um, take advantage of the hunting situations that I've been presented with and make the most of those opportunities, which I think is super important to being successful as an archer um, when it comes to hunting. And I've, you know, obviously had some pretty good success in some of the tournaments, uh, local tournaments in the state. For me, uh, I would consider myself someone who kind of sticks to what I like and what I'm comfortable with. You know, I'll change a bow every year and, try something different, um, but I don't change my arrow setups very often. I don't change my broadhead setups. You know, um, I'm not a tinker. I'm not someone who wants to change a setup every week. I don't want to be dealing with that, uh, you know, constantly trying to tune a new setup with a new arrow because, I mean, frankly, my life and my professional life is busy as it is, and I like to be able to pick up my bow and know that my setup is good, and now all i got to do is train my body to be able to shoot that bow and get myself in good bow shape to make good shots, knowing that my equipment's already ready to rock and roll. It makes my life a lot easier. Um, if, you know, there's nothing wrong with changing your setups and messing around and trying to find the exact perfect um, setup for you. I mean, that's awesome for people. I just, frankly, don't have that kind of time. I, I mean, I'll put in, always put in the work. I'll shoot all the arrows I need to, and I always shoot arrows exactly like I hunt. You know, my arrows have my luminox on them. They have the same broadheads that I hunt with. And I've been shooting broadheads and not field points for probably the last month now um, just because I don't understand how you could possibly go out hunting and not shoot the broadhead that you're going to hunt with 
you know, for practice. I mean, in my opinion, at a minimum, a month before your hunt starts, you should be shooting nothing but broadheads. And I get it if you go into the archery shop to shoot because it's 115 degrees outside and you just want to get some arrows, you know, through your bow and make some good shots, that's fine. Shoot field points. It's all good. Um, But when I'm out, you know, shooting my targets and stuff like that, it's nothing strictly but broadheads. I want to jump for a second. Uh, I know we talked quite a bit about blinds and, you know, sitting for deer and what have you, but we've also, um, and we've got some questions that I've put out to Instagram followers, and, and I think there's a, question, a couple questions in regards to it, but let's talk a little bit about stalking deer, both coos deer and mule deer, and talk about some of the tips that you might have for people or things that you've learned that works for you and, you know, whether it be deer behavior, you know, patterns, um, you know, just things that, that have made you a better stalker of deer, what would that, you know, where would you go with that? Well, I mean, I think you've had questions on it before about people asking you to stalk deer in their bed or stalk deer when they're up feeding. Uh, in Arizona, and I mean pretty much everywhere on these early hunts, you're stalking bedded deer. It's just the way it works. Those deer are going to be bedded down before you can get over on them. And frankly, I think it's a better opportunity to stalk those deer because um, they're laying in one direction, facing one direction, and as long as you can see them in their bed and what they're doing and where they're looking, you can kind of game it and figure out how you're going to come in from them. Um, you want to obviously come in from the opposite direction they're looking. And, you know, a lot of times you can get in really close on a bedded deer as long as you kind of know where the surrounding deer are at and, and give you an idea of where to come in from. The tough thing about stalking a bedded deer is very rarely are you going to be able to shoot a deer in his bed, which means that you're going to have to sit there on these early hunts for hours hoping that deer gets up. And the problem with that can be inevitably at some point that wind is going to swirl and that deer may just blow out of its bed. But I really think that... um, for me, if I'm stalking a bedded buck, my goal is to get within 60 to 70 yards of that buck. Um, as long as I can get within my effective bow range and get that close, I will just sit there and wait for that deer to get up. I feel like I'm a little bit far, farther away in case I get a bad wind for a second. I also feel like I can get away with, you know, a lot of times if you're sitting there for hours, you're, it's hard to sit still. You're going to want to move. You're going to want to stretch. You're going to want to you know, chase the shade around the bush that you're hunkered up next to. And if you're at 60 or 70 yards, you can usually get away with a little bit of that. Whereas if you're at, you know, 30 yards, it's going to be really difficult to get away with that. And so um, I definitely feel like it's beneficial to stalk bedded deer. I definitely um, done it a bunch of different times. You know, I kill the coos deer that way. I kill the mule deer that way. And it's, it's a very effective way to do it. It's just in Arizona... And depending on the, you know, some of the high country stuff in Colorado and other states, you can sometimes get an arrow in those bucks in their bed. It's just not very common to be able to do that in some of the brushier country in Arizona. I did a podcast with Randy Ulmer a couple of years ago and asked him the same question. And he says, basically, he stalks deer bedded, but he gets to a certain distance and then he hangs out. He, he, if I remember right, he was more hanging out at 125, 150 yards. What would you say about that um, tactic as far as trying to get close, get, you know, and obviously 
A lot of the hunting he's doing is in Colorado and high country mule deer and stuff, getting close, getting in kind of position, but not where you're going to have a wind screw you up and then let those deer get up and start feeding and then go ahead and close the, you know, the gap on them. Talk a little bit about that from your experience. Well, I mean, I definitely am not going to second guess Randy with all his success and things of that nature, but I mean, it makes total sense if you think about it. For me, on talking about a deer, I don't want to blow the opportunity, meaning I don't want to bump the deer out of his bed and lose my shot. I want to give the deer a chance to get out of his bed and make a mistake by either feeding closer toward me or feeding behind a bush that I can move in on and close the gap and kill him. So I, I feel like that hanging, you know, stopping short 100, 125 yards, wherever you're comfortable at, wherever, you know, depending on the topography, what's a good spot, and letting those deer get up and, and let them kind of make the mistake, giving you the upper hand is critical because, you know, you, if you stock into a vetted buck at 30 yards, and you're going to sit there for three or four hours, it's going to be, you're going to be hard-pressed for that deer not to spook based on your scent or a sound or something of that nature because you're just, frankly, too close. Um, so I always like to give the animal a chance to kind of feel their fate or give me the upper hand by making a mistake rather than me screwing it up um, without even giving them a chance. Let's talk about um, in that same category, if you will, stalking deer, uh, you know, in some states, Arizona, it's legal to use a radio so you can have an earpiece in uh, where someone can be talking to you and say, okay, Brian, you're 100 yards, you know, just hang out there, I'm going to watch the deer, I'll let you know when he gets up. Um, let's talk about that strategy, and then let's talk about the strategy in maybe some of the states where radios are not legal or people choose they don't want to use them, you know, some sort of hand signaling with a buddy that, hey, you know, you're in good position, the buck's bedded, I'll give you a signal when he gets up. Talk a little bit about that and how you see that being effective for people trying to stalk and kill deer with a bow. Well, I mean, radios are super effective um, in the states where they're legal. Arizona is one of those states where they're legal. You can utilize them. You would think, and there are probably the uneducated people out there think, well, if you're using radios, it gives you just this tremendous upper tremendous advantage, and it does. It definitely gives you an advantage. But your if your radio operator doesn't know what they're doing, uh, you're basically it's not going to be that effective. But radios can be extremely effective. Uh, I've used radios in the past to you know try and kill deer with. I don't. I may have killed one or two deer with the use of radios. Um, but it's a pretty common practice today, especially uh, in Arizona among, you know, depending on where you're hunting, a lot of the guides and outfitters use radios all the time, even on the rifle hunts, just to communicate with each other and get people around because ultimately it increases their success. Um, there's, you know, obviously if you utilize a radio, you can't enter an animal into Boone and Crockett. You can't enter an animal into... Pope and Young or the bow hunting in Arizona record book or anything of that nature. Um, FCI does still accept animals harvested with the use of radios. But, you know, it's you have to come up with a good hand signal system. You have to come up with, you know, some sort of a flagging system with your, your buddies if you're not going to use radios. And it can be, um, it's something that you have to work through and you have to have a good partner who, 
you know, you guys can understand. And frankly, you have to have something that's big enough that you can see what direction they're talking about. Hand signals are pretty tough because if you're talking a thousand plus yards, if you're looking through ten power chest binoculars, it's pretty difficult to see what someone's signaling you to do without your your binos being on a tripod. So I would encourage you to utilize some sort of a flagging system. You know, I have several like golf golf style flags, like uh, golf um, pin flags that are like you know twelve inches by eighteen inch flags that are all solid colors that you know I've used on hunts to help have someone signal me in. You know, um, it still can be extremely efficient. It just takes practice. You know, it, it takes a lot more practice than what you than what you would think to understand everybody's uh, general hand signals. And you got to keep it simple. You can't get all crazy with hand signals. You, it's got to be a pretty basic system. Yeah, and basics like the buck still bedded. So having a signal for okay, you've stalked over there. Everything is just you know how you you know if we're setting up glass and a buck and you go make a stock, and I, you know, give you the orange stocking cap up, you know, in a tree means everything is the same. For From your perspective as the hunter, you're like, okay, I know the bushies by, I know the rockies by, everything's the same, so I know I'm in good position. Don't you think just having even basic things like that as a starting point, knowing that, yes, I'm still in the game, the deer hasn't moved, the orange cap is up, or whatever it may be, the red flag is up, or you know, whatever signal you come up with, have some sort of basic premise that, yes, everything is moving as planned, um, gives that archer a lot more confidence and I think a lot more chance to even, you know, have a chance to get it done. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the unknown is what gets you in trouble because you think that, you know, the buck's gone or you think you've gone too far or whatever. And inevitably, the animal's right there, has never moved, and it's, you know, and you end up bumping him out because you think he's gone. So, I mean, it's right. definitely important to, to pay attention to that for sure. Brian, I want to take uh, just a second here. We're going to dive into the Q&A questions next, but I want to take a second to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, of 20-plus years. Brian, you know him. He's the optics manager over there at GoHunt.com, the gear shop. And he's doing a fantastic job over there of talking and educating customers. And if you guys have any optics needs at all, whether it be binos, spotting scopes, tripods, rifle scopes, anything to do with optics, if you've got glassing questions, reach out to him at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also send him an email that he will get directly at optics, so optics at gohunt.com. Uh, also want to remind you the August giveaway is about half over. So far we've named two different uh, giveaway winners in June and July, and that's for a $1,000 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card. All you have to do is purchase something either through Cody or on the GoHunt.com website and just use the JSO, JSO um, promo code and you're going to be entered into the drawing. You can spend $13 or you could spend $3,000. If you spend $12, you know, $13, you get 13 entries. If you spend $3,000, you get 3,000 entries. So it's dollar for dollar entry. Use the JSO promo code. 
Also want to remind you guys the Go Hunt Insider. There's a free trial going on right now. If you go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott, that's going to follow the prompts there. And you can sign up for a 30-day free trial of the best Western hunting resource out there, Go Hunt Insider. I want to thank Kuyu. That's Kuyu Ultralight Hunting uh, for their sponsorship. That's the gear that I wear. I know, Brian, I know you wear a lot of Kuyu gear. Uh, go to kuiu.com, kuiu.com to find out more. Uh, thanks to Kuyu for their sponsorship. Uh, phonescope.com, if you use the jscott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there at Phonescope. Uh, and then onxmaps.com, if you use the jscott19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount there uh, at onxmaps.com. Brian, let's dive right into uh, the Q&A here. And uh, I know the listeners, they've really um, liked listening to a lot of these Q&As that we've been doing, so let's just dive in. Okay. Okay, this question comes in. Broadheads that you have had good success with and like for archery bull elk. The last bull I killed was with a grave digger, um, the chisel tip. They have a grave digger cut on contact and a chisel tip, and I got a complete pass through on a mature bull that I killed in Unit 21. And I've had, I've also killed a red stag with those broadheads and a couple other big animals, uh, my big mule deer. So that's why, that's why I have used most recently in the last several years. Okay. And for guys out there, you know, when mechanicals first came out, Brian, you know, there's been people that still don't like mechanicals. From your perspective, what's the biggest benefit of a mechanical broadhead? Uh, I mean, strictly the benefit of a mechanical broadhead is just overall flight. I mean, they they fly better than an expander. I mean, sorry, they fly better than a fixed plate egg. That's just the general deal. And it, I, I, I think that it requires less effort from the bow hunter to just screw on a mechanical broadhead that flies almost as good as their field points, if not as good as their field points, without any effort. You know, and, uh, a fixed blade head may take a little bit of doing. Um, if you have not the greatest form, it may be really hard to get a fixed blade head to, to shoot. I mean, I've shot some fixed blade heads that fly perfectly. The first time I put them on, no issues. And I've shot fixed blade heads that I absolutely cannot get to hit where I want them to hit. So, I mean, each setup is a little different. I mean, it varies from fletching to uh, poundage to arrow spine to draw length, you know. But if you get one broadhead that doesn't work the way you want it, you know, it doesn't mean you can't try another broadhead that will also fly just as good. But, I mean, the reality is I believe that people genuinely shoot expandable heads just because they're easier to get to fly and to get the tune out of your bow. And, I mean, there's great expandable heads out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of people that have killed a lot of animals with expandable heads, and it's just not something that I I prefer to use uh, on some of the bigger game. Next question comes in from White Jacob on Instagram. It says, tips for determining sex of bears in the Arizona desert. Brian, I know you've, you've had quite a bit of success uh, hunting bears in Arizona. Um, actually, you just your wife just shot one uh, a couple days ago on the, in Arizona on the auction tag. Talk a little bit about determining the sex of bears. Well, I mean that, that that's a tough can be a tough thing to uh, determine. I mean, your big bears 
are going to have, you know, big blocky head, you know, they're going to have a belly hanging on them and they're just going to walk like they're, you know, at the top of the food chain. Whereas a lot of your females kind of have like, it looks like they have a long neck because they're, yeah. there's, not a, there's not a big variation in the size of the neck going directly into the head. So it kind of looks like it's all one. And so that's one of the ways to kind of get an idea. I mean, if an animal looks like it has long legs, uh, especially a bear looks like it has real long legs, a lot of times that's going to be, you know, a younger bear or a female. But for me, I always look at the neck and the way they carry themselves. Um, if that neck doesn't look like there's any separation between the size of the neck and the head, then to me, a lot of times that's going to be a female. I'm not an expert on it. I mean, I try to shoot boars. You can be fooled. You know, obviously there are small bears that are boars and, you know, big bears that are, that are sows. But, I mean, you know, the goal is to try and shoot a big mature bear. Um, you know, Nicole shot a sow last year, but the bear was 18 years old. I mean, that's, you don't ask for much more out of a sow. I mean, that sow was done breeding and had done everything it was going to do. It was 18 years old and it was a big, old, mature animal, you know. Yeah. Typically, too, the sows seem to like their nose kind of looks long where boars kind of have that stumpy face, wouldn't you agree, because their head's bigger. It just seems like their nose doesn't stick out as much. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, it looks like they kind of have a snout on a, st- on a sow, whereas it looks like on a bear, like a uh, boar, the, the nose has been kind of compressed into the face. The other thing is I didn't mention earlier, and I should have mentioned, is the ears. You know, yeah. if a bear's ears are look big, then that bear generally has a small head. It's not typically going to be a real big bear. If the ears are small on the head, you know, kind of out to the sides, not just like right next to each other, that's another indicator of a big mature bear. You know, right now the bears in Arizona are not real fat just because they've been living through a, a, a summer and especially these desert bears, you know, they're, they're just starting to, to pack on some pounds and stuff like that, so they're kind of lean. So, I mean... Even the the older, some of the older, bigger skull bears that I've killed over the years didn't have, like, the biggest giant potties on them. Another question. Uh, tips for August archery bear hunt in Arizona. Lots of sign. Game cam picks over water are only at night. So it sounds like his bears are coming in at night. He's got lots of sign. What are some tips you'd give him? Well, if you know where the bears are at because they're coming in, then I would, I would consider varmint calling in the, in the canyons, in the bottom of the canyons. Bears travel the bottoms of the canyons, uh, typically. I mean, they'll be up on the sides of the mountains when they're feeding and stuff like that, but a lot of times they'll use the bottom of the canyons to travel. So I would get into those canyons and varmint call and do it for 45 minutes to an hour at one setting, uh, and you might have some success drawing those bears out that you're getting on cam at night but having trouble finding during daylight hours. That was an archery question, right? Was I think that guy mentioned yeah. he was archery hunting. Yeah. yeah. So I would definitely, definitely consider varmint calling in those areas. And you've got to do it for a long time on a bear, and it's got to be continuous because they, they uh, tend to lose interest if it's not continuous and for a long period of time. Brian, your experience, if you had, a, you know, he obviously got game cam, so he's setting it on water, and he says they're coming in at night. What has been your experience as far as sitting for bears, um, you know, is that something you'd glass morning, evening, but definitely be sitting during the day on that water source, just even though the cams are saying that they're not coming in during the day, would you just take the chance that they are going to come in during the day? Well, I mean, if it's hot and dry, bears love to swim. So if, if it's real hot and dry, I mean, they're carrying around a black or brown or red hide, 
and they love to go for a swim. So I would definitely not overlook continuing to sit, especially during the middle of the day on your pond, because bears are notorious, and I think you've gotten a bunch of them up to thought six for coming in and swimming around in the pond to cool off. Yeah, I mean, I would tell you that 95% of my bear videos and photos at the Ox 6, you know, with 150 trail cameras running, the majority of them would be between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., right during the middle of the day. It seems like that's when they're coming to water. So I would tell uh, the listener or the, the guy that sent in the question, you know, things could change very quickly, and especially as hot and dry as it is, you know, just because you know, the last couple of weeks maybe they've been hitting at night, that might all change and they might come, uh, definitely come to cool off. Next question is, um, comes from super underscore awesome rock and look, looking, let's see, look for my first archery deer. All I've seen so far is forkies. Any suggestions to find a bigger buck? You got to get out of the nursery. Um, wherever you're at is where you're seeing lots of deer and it's predominantly what I would call a nursery. Um, you have the places where I've found my bigger deer, I see less deer. So if you're seeing the does and, and the two points in the spikes that hang out, hang out with those does, you're kind of in that nursery zone and you've got to get away from that and start looking at some other places that might be a little more remote or just in different places where you may see a few less deer and, you're, and uh, those deer that you do see are generally tend to be bigger deer doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't mean a forky can't be with a big deer. Um, but if you're talking about the fork and horn deer that are hanging out with all the does and stuff like that, you got to find a different spot. you got to start looking in. It doesn't have to be a whole new spot. you got to look in different areas within that spot to try and figure out where those better bucks are at. Don't be afraid to cover lots of country and glass. Yeah, and I would agree with that as well. And I would say potentially looking a little bit more rugged country, looking a little bit more canyon, a little steeper country, um, do a little bit more glassing, especially if we're talking about coos deer. Um, you know, look on those north, east, north-facing slopes, the shaded slopes, uh, the bigger mature deer. They don't like to be out in the sun. Typically, does are going to be kind of on south-facing slopes and forkies, you know, young deer still with their mom and such. Um, so just looking a little bit rougher country uh, would be the suggestion I'd give you. Okay, next question, Zach Buddy 24 Are you concerned about spooking deer while hiking to your glassing point? Um, I've talked about this before. Brian, I'll, I'll get your opinion on this. Uh, definitely. Um, I always like to walk in, uh, you know, to the glassing point with a headlamp. Uh, if, if I don't need the headlamp, in other words, I got a little bit of gray light, I don't want to use the headlamp, but I always like to get up there plenty of, plenty early so that if deer, you know, if they hear me kind of rolling around in the rocks, if they don't, if they can't see me, they just kind of hear it. A lot of times they'll go back to doing whatever they're doing. Definitely if they're not used to seeing lights and all of a sudden now they're seeing lights, you're going to blow those deer out. Um, I always like to go up, if I know a deer's in a certain basin, I like to hike up on the opposite side of the hill so that all of my noise going in, um, when I get to the top, you know, I don't like to skyline out too much. I like to kind of sneak, you know, set my pack down and kind of sneak and peek over. Uh, Brian, your thoughts on spooking deer? I mean, it's always a concern. You try to do everything you can to not 
spook deer, but I mean, you try to get in there early so that you can be glassing at first light and ready to rock and roll. And I would say, you know, hiking in, you're going to spook some deer. I think the what is probably more important than worrying as much about hiking in is making sure that when you get to wherever you're going and you're on the top of your knob, just sit down and, and wait for it to get light enough to see before you start moving around, walking to the edge and things like that because you could have those deer right there um, below you on the other side of the, the hill and, you know, you'll never get a look at them because you're shuffling through your pack and doing all that stuff. So, I mean, you have to get to your glassing spot, which means you have to make some noise. You may have to use a light. But once you get there, just relax, sit down, you know, let don't walk right to the edge of the canyon, let it settle, and just kind of wait for it to get light enough so you can see kind of what's going on before you start shuffling around. Next question, Lazy H 98 Will I have to comb through broke bulls for my early rifle tag this year? He doesn't say the unit. Um, if it's like most early rifle hunts in the state of Arizona, my answer would be yes, absolutely, plan on it. I think they'll be... I think, you know, antlers are probably good and strong. It's, you know, not a year where they're going to be brittle. Uh, but I have a feeling with as good of the, you know, as good as the winter feed, as good as the feed came out of the winter, even though we haven't had the monsoons, I think they're going to be feeling good. I think they're going to be rutting pretty hard. So definitely broken points are a concern. Brian? Um, I mean, first off, congratulations. And uh... – you can't worry about things you can't control. I mean, you got an elk tag on arguably one of the best elk years we've ever seen in the state. If you have a 3C tag, which I believe is before the, the archery hunt, then no, you probably won't have to deal with broke bulls. But if you're talking about a later hunt um, and some of the other units, you know, the first week of October, last part of September, you're probably going to see some broke bulls. But it's going to be probably way better than it's been in years past. So... I don't think I'd worry about it too much. Uh, you're probably going to deal with some of them being broken, and as the hunt goes on, you'll deal with more and more. But, you know, that's the risk you run by drawing one of the best tags in the United States. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, you just got to go see what you can find. And, you know, you've got a seven-day, those hunts are seven days long, um, you know, and capitalize on it. You don't get those tags very often, and, you know, have the discipline to weed through a bunch of bulls until you get the one you want. Uh, this question comes in from Dennis Noakes. He says, sheep, of course, backcountry, down and dirty style. He just got off a stone sheep hunt. Uh, he also shot a goat. Uh, but he, I got a couple emails from him, Brian, how he got a lot of value out of listening to our uh, Northwest Territories doll sheep uh, in your hunt that you had up there and then when you were helping me prepare for my sheep hunts last year. Um, that wasn't, you know, it was a couple years for you. Uh, I know you've got uh, sheep on the brain, uh, you know, as far as in the future. Are you going to be going up on any more of those doll sheep hunts or what are your plans? I'm not going on a doll sheep hunt until I figure out a way to kill a stone sheep. So i got to figure out a way to kill a stone sheep because that's the last sheep I need for my slam. Um, unless I win something, I'm going to hold off until I can find a stone sheep that I can afford to go on if there's even one left out there. So if any listeners out there, if you're a stone sheep outfitter and you just are 
uh, feeling gratuitous, uh, give Brian a call, and uh, <laughs> he needs a stone sheet. <laughs> yes, I do. So i got to find we a like way to make it happen. Stuff. We like yes, this, sir. Okay, next question. Uh, wildlife KB, when is the proper time to attempt a stock on a deer? Do I let him bed first? I know, Brian, you had talked about that. Um, and I had mentioned Randy's strategy of kind of getting close. And, you know, the only thing I would say is I've seen a lot of guys, um, they, they're up on a glassing point, they see a deer bed, and they immediately go over and stalk that deer. I've seen a lot of times where those deer will lay down, and then 15 minutes later they get up because they didn't exactly like that spot, and then they go lay down a second time. In my opinion, let the deer bed, but go ahead and watch him for quite a while. Now, if you have someone that's there to, you know, and you're in a state that it's legal and you either use radios or spotter or hand signals, whatever, that's one thing to go ahead, go ahead and get over and get close and then have your buddy tell you what's going on. But if you're, you know, solo, I would watch the deer. I would bed the deer. I would make sure that the deer, is st you know, stays put then I would go ahead and, and get over there close. I'm curious if you have anything to add to that. No, I mean, if you're solo, you got to wait for the deer to bed. I mean, it's your best opportunity, and they do oftentimes bed once and then 15 minutes later re-bed again. And if you're solo and you've already built off the hill and you don't know that, you're going to kind of handicap yourself. So if you have a spotter, um, that helps if the, bed, if the buck moves around and re-beds. But I definitely think that, you know, it's more beneficial to stalk a buck that's bedded uh, than a buck that's moving around. Now, if your buck's during the rut, maybe uh, a waste of time to wait for a buck who's running to bed down because he may not. Yeah, and, uh, one more thing to add is, you know, we don't talk a lot about the strategy of going over and getting close and just, you know, having a hankering for which way is that deer going to go when he gets up, where's the shade of the hill, Where's the feed at? Where was he feeding? And then he went somewhere to bed. I mean, sometimes you can kind of predict when they get up what they're going to do. And there's a lot to be said, I think, for getting in a position and or planning to be in a position where when that deer gets up, we, you know, he's going to move 50 to 100 yards towards me. Well, you might be right in the money and let him come to you. I think a lot of people get too impatient, go rushing over there, and most of the deer get blown out of their beds, and they don't even have a chance to stock them, you know, is what, I, what I've seen with hunters and such. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's tough. Hopefully you're not hunting by yourself. Hopefully you're not getting, you know, you have some help and things of that nature. Uh, question, hunt to eat underscore AZ, best bow for a big guy, 6'9 with a long draw. Wow, 6'9 is a, uh, is definitely, definitely, definitely a, uh, a big guy. And that's that's lumberjack long, status. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a long draw length. Um, I know Tim Gillingham shoots a couple of different bow techs, and he's like 6'5, six, 6'7, six, somewhere, in, I think he's 6'5, six, 6'6. Six, six. Um, I know PSE makes a real long drawing bow. Um, ultimately, that you're unique in that situation, so you're going to have to kind of go out there and play around and figure out which bows will get you to a 32-inch draw. And I'm guessing you're somewhere in that 32-inch range and see what, the, what they make out there because you're fairly limited to that. So you're going to have to figure out which one will do it, and then you're going to have to go out and kind of try them. Next question from 
uh, O-R-O Bobby. Uh, sorry, this isn't really a deer question, but what unit do you recommend bear hunting in Arizona? I would say, well, Brian's probably better to answer this, but, you know, 23 is really hard to beat. 22 historically has been good. Um, you know, some of the central units, uh, you know, 6B, 6A, um, and then there's some southern Arizona units, you know, 32. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts? If you're a first-time bear hunter who wants to get into the, into the bear game and you want to give yourself a chance to kill a bear, I would say 23 South is probably your, your go-to unit. Uh, it would be my number one. And there's a lot of bears. There's a lot of country that can glass that you can glass, and, you know, it just gives you the best chance to be successful. As a new bear hunter who doesn't have any spots of his own, your goal should be to glass long distance and glass as much country as possible until you can find a bear. Because a black bear sticks out like a sore thumb on a green hillside, and um, just glass four, five, six miles away, and once you find a bear, look at your map, figure out how to get closer, figure out how you can hunt him, and that'll help you kind of hone in on, you know, where the bears are at. Every year is a little different. Last year, they absolutely slaughtered the bears in 23 South because the feed sources were very limited. This year, the feed sources are everywhere, so the bears are a lot more dispersed. So you're not seeing as many bears being killed, although they did kill the cow limit. So, I mean, the, the hunt will close sundown on Wednesday. Next question, albino beaver, why do some of the biggest bucks show up right before the season? My argument you know, would be, that, not argument, but my answer would be, I don't think they show up right before the season. I, you know, I don't think the deer move around a whole lot during the archery season, whether you're talking coos deer, mule deer, whether you're talking desert or high country. Um, I think it's maybe more of a factor of you didn't see them. Uh, or you miss them, or your trail cams didn't pick them up, but I just don't see deer moving a whole lot kind of in this early archery velvet season. I would say that the reason is is because the hunters are spending more time in the field because it's getting closer to the start of the hunt. So they're spending more so they're time seeing, actually looking. So more time, and then all of a sudden they start seeing more. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they, go ahead. I was just saying, I don't think that they just all of a sudden appear. I just think that we're finally seeing them. Right. Spending more times, which means more sightings. Uh, NM Bowhunter 727, four-fletched or three-fletched for hunting arrow setup? I'm a three-fletched guy. It's worked for me. Um, there was years ago I shot a six-fletched arrow, and it works too. Um, just... Play around with your setup, figure out what you like best. I mean, I, I don't think it's a guaranteed yes this way, yes that way. you got to find what works for you. And, I mean, if you're finding a four-fletch works in your setup, then use it. I don't think that anyone can say, oh, no, you can't shoot a four-fletch or one way or the other. You shoot three-fletch three glazers, though, right? I do, yes. Okay, DT Hughes for what do you do to help preserve velvet out in the field? I mean, you can inject it with formaldehyde. Uh, my deer that I killed on the strip, I killed him, you know, the evening and basically packed up camp the next morning and was in town 
by about noon, 1 o'clock, and I bought a box freezer in town from Home Depot for like 120 bucks, and I put my deer in the box freezer and ran the generator the entire way home. And did that work? Yeah, it's awesome. Um, my recommendation would be to freeze, freeze dry your horns once you get them secured um, out of the field. I think the freeze drying looks much better than uh, anything else. Okay. Uh, best advice for first timer, once a deer is spotted, when to stock, bring pack, don't bring pack, etc. Um, obviously, stalking the deer when he's bedded, if you can, always carry your pack with you <laughs> until you get within the final, you know, 100 yards or so, and then drop it and make sure you know where you put it. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things about not taking your pack on the stock is if you get stuck over there for two or three hours or four hours or half a day or the whole day, like Brian said, and you don't have your pack with your water and all your all of your gear, and and then let's say it gets dark on you and you've left your pack somewhere, just like Brian's saying, and you don't know where to find it. And, you know, it's got your flash, it's got everything, it's got your whole world in it. So I always like to keep my pack with me, keep it as close to me. You know, if you have to close the gap 15 or 20 yards, that's one thing. Uh, but I try and keep my pack as close to me at all times as possible. Uh, and sometimes it makes waiting those long days out if you've got everything you need right there. Of course, you've got to be quiet, um, but it's, it's better to have it with you than, you know, than laying 150 yards away. I agree. Okay. Trail camera settings recommendations. So, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tackle that first, then you can. I run the stealth cams, I run the G34 Pros and the 4Ks, and these are this is on private land at the Ot 6 Ranch in Colorado. Um, and you can run the setting, I just, you can do custom settings, I don't. Uh, basically, the first setting is a 30-second delay, uh, three-shot burst. Number two setting is a 30-second delay, a one-shot burst of photos. And then the third setting is a video uh, setting. I think a lot of it depends whether you're going, you know, if you're in an area where there's cattle, if you're in an area where there's, you know, elk, um, you know, are, are you trying to get night photos? Um, you have to kind of mess with that. But I definitely like a burst of photos, um, you know, if you're in an area where there's cattle, if you have a burst, you're going to run through a bunch of, uh, of space on your card and a bunch of photos if there's tons of cattle coming in. So maybe in that scenario, I would do like a, you know, a five-minute delay and a one-shot. Um, but there's just something about that burst. Sometimes you get different angles. Sometimes, you know, you, you, it gets triggered, but your your one shot gets a deer's butt or a deer's head or an elk's head. If you get that three shot, it typically will get the whole animal in frame. Brian, what has your experience been? It all depends on how often you're going to check your cameras. I mean, if you're check if you're during the hunt, then I want three or four second bursts every ten seconds. You know, if I'm checking cameras like up on the strip during my hunt, but if I'm checking cameras, you know, once a month, then I may do. Three or you know three or four picture bursts 
every 60 seconds. Uh, if you've got cattle in the area, it may be longer. You know, every scenario plays itself out differently. You know, the, the SD cards these days take, you know, can hold so many pictures that, you know, the biggest thing is you just don't want to miss an opportunity on a giant animal, you know, getting that animal on, on camera. So it's just a matter of kind of the scenario you're in and where you're at. I mean, private land is a little different for you, but, I mean, uh, mine is just all based on how often I'm checking the cameras and what, what kind of environment I'm dealing with. And another question here, uh, do you like to hunt in big groups or one or two people? You know, I saw that question because um, you sent them to me earlier, and the more people, the better, as long as they're skilled at what they're doing. And so what I mean by that, and it depends on the hunt. You know, if you've got an elk hunt, an archery elk hunt in Arizona, I really only need one or two people. I don't need one or two people, but one person with me as a caller who knows what he's doing would be, would be awesome. Um, plus, it makes the hunt more enjoyable to have a good person there with you helping. The key is you need people to have a positive attitude that you can depend on. Um, the other thing on, like, an elk hunt is if you have someone who maybe just wants to come and, you know, go check cameras here and there and maybe glass in the evening, but he's willing to, to prepare dinner or something like that, that helps you a ton because our three elk days are short. Uh, the, the, the nights are short and the days are long. So, I mean, if you have someone that's helping you out by cooking food and stuff like that, it makes life easier. You know, if you're hunting sheep, then, you know, the more eyes, the better. The key, though, is, is that you've got to have people that know what they're doing because if you have someone who doesn't know what they're doing and they see a ram and they're like, oh, my God, I saw the biggest ram and you got to come and you spend a whole day or two days worse trying to find this ram and then he shows you the ram and you look at it and it's like a dink, you're like, oh, man, like I just wasted two days. So right. um, good help is priceless. And honestly, some of the better outfits in Arizona who kill some of the bigger deer, um, bigger elk on some of these auction tags, they've got a pile of guys in there that all know what they're doing because once the animal, they know the animal's in the area, they just got to turn him up, and that's what they do. And, I mean, that's a lot like what happens on the strip every year, especially during the rifle hunt, is that once a deer shows up on camera, they go in there with, you know, as many as 10 guys and just, you know, burn the hillside up with their glass and then finally turn that buck up and get him killed. So, I mean, depending on your hunt and the quality of your help will kind of determine how many people you really want there. I mean, there, can, there is such thing as too many if someone's not capable of getting around, not capable of getting to the knob you send them to. They get lost, things like that. So, I mean, part of the thing is, is you got to understand your role as help, too. You may not be there when the kill happens. Um, but you're out there trying to help someone with some once-in-a-lifetime coveted tag because that's when you see most of your guys with big groups is when they have a sheet tag or they have a strip tag or they have an early rifle bull tag. Um, but utilizing your help effectively can really, really, uh, you know, kind of make you more successful. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just to tag on to that, I think you made a good point about sometimes you're not actually there for the kill. Maybe you're on the other side of the mountain. Maybe you're on the other side of the unit. When you when you go to help someone on their hunt, and this is a little different than the question, but when you go to help someone on their hunt, you've got to do whatever it takes to help. And sometimes that's not in the limelight. Sometimes that's not in the spotlight. Sometimes you're not even near the kill. You're not even, you don't even see it. You don't even know about it until you get a text that said, hey, 
I, you know, I shot my buck or I shot my bull, but that's part of, you know, helping. And that can be the biggest help to someone knowing that, hey, you know, Brian's over there hitting that country. I'm just going to pound this. And it's just the way it goes. As far as big groups, personally, I, I, I don't like big groups. I like just a handful of people. I feel like too many people sometimes can just kind of get in the way. If everybody's, like you said, Brian, got the common goal and they're all good hunters and there's nothing more frustrating, you know, as an outfitter, sometimes I've had people come up and help and, you know, I tell them this is where I want you and I give them the coordinates or, you know, give them the onyx, you know, here's where you go and they don't know how to turn it on. They don't know how to follow a map. They don't know, you know, it's like, I like to be able to say, yeah, you want to come help? Here's your coordinates. I want you there 30 minutes before the sun comes up and you don't have to, I just, you know, if Brian comes to help me on a hunt, I can just give him coordinates and say, this is where I want you. And that's it. I don't have to tell him anymore. I know he'll be there. So having good, reliable help and friends in camp is huge. Absolutely. Um, best early season, last week in August, bow hunting elk strategy, calling strategy. So he wants the best bow hunting strategy and calling strategy. Well, I'm going to say last week of August, that's going to be pretty tough for calling. Uh, you know, maybe some high country Colorado stuff where you're up, you know, 10, 11,000 feet. You'll get some bugling here and there. Um, I, I just don't think calling is a, a super effective strategy at that point in time. I think late August, pretty much anywhere you are across the West, it's going to be hot. It's going to be dry. More than likely, you can sit wallows um you know you can sit water uh don't be afraid to sit all day during the middle of the day um another strategy don't be afraid to glass them up and figure them out uh i think super aggressive calling that last week of august is going to hurt you i would probably do more subtle just kind of um curiosity type calling where you're calling and the elk just maybe want to come check you out um, normally for me, calling doesn't work really well until about the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th of September, somewhere right in there is when it kind of starts getting effective. And I actually kind of like that quote-unquote early season uh, for some of those bigger bulls because they're not completely herded up yet. So, Brian, any thoughts on that? No, I agree with you. I mean, the last part of August, I don't think you're going to be doing much calling at all. I mean, it just doesn't seem like uh, that's going to be real likely at all, you know what I mean? So I, Next question I think it, is, uh, go ahead, you got something to add there? No, you're good, buddy. Um, MR Outdoor 72, Coos Tactics for Older Age Class Bucks. I'll let you tackle that one first, Brian. I mean, obviously we talked about a lot of that, uh, a lot of the different options out there. I mean, in the, in the early season, running cameras can be extremely effective to find a bigger buck and once you find that buck I mean you can determine how you want to hunt him whether you're going to sit the water or whether you're going to glass for him depending on those circumstances but I mean uh, if you're, that's the early hunt season if you're talking the later hunts you know during the rut and things like that you just got to get in whether you know there's a good concentration of bucks and does and if you're actually catch running activity then you basically just got to bounce around and see which bucks show up with certain does but it's, uh, a lot of it's going to be glassing, spend a lot of time behind glass if you're talking rifle hunts. And, you know, 
my one of the things I can tell anyone with a lot of confidence is that the places where I've killed the bigger bucks have always had lower deer densities. That's just been my experience throughout my life hunting deer is that the bigger bucks I've killed have always been in places where I see less deer. Well, and to add to that, I think you got to go in those rough places. I think you got to go in those places where people don't, you know, don't get too easily. I think you've got to get a mile off the road. Um, you know, it's a simple numbers game. If, you know, bucks that are typically close to the road get seen, get shot. You got to get in a little bit further. Now, with that being said, I mean, there's sometimes where there's a main highway and there's a giant buck right off the highway because people don't look there. So go to places where big bucks or go to places that are rough, go to places where people can't get to, but also don't overlook those super easy places that might be thick or just for some reason people drive right by them. Uh, but if you're, if you're just seeing young bucks, like we talked about before, uh, you've got to get in those, those shaded hillsides, those, those big mature bucks. They do not like to spend much time out in the sunshine. They like to be in the shade as much as possible. Uh, so hopefully that will help you. Uh, next question is from Henny underscore AZ, best unit in Arizona for late rifle elk hunt. I would say consider unit 23, uh, consider unit 27. Both of those units, from my perspective, they're, they're better glassing units. Unit 27 with the fire that they had in there um, has created some good glassing as well. 23, there's a lot of canyons, and you, you want, on those late hunts, you want that, those areas where you have topography, but where the canyons aren't so thick that you can't see in them. Uh, you want to be able to be able to have some viewing, some open glassing, some, you know, burn areas create where you can get across, you can glass from a high point down and across, uh, and, and see into where those elk are. Some of the tougher units are like a unit 10, where it's pretty flat, and you, you know, or unit 9, even more, or unit 8, where it's pretty flat, you don't have a lot of optical advantage, those can be the tougher ones. Brian, any, any of these that you'd like to add? No, I mean, I think 23 is one of the better units in the state. I mean, you have very limited bulls killed um, on the early hunts because you only have 15 archery hunters, or I guess if you split up both of them, you have 30 archery hunters and like 20 early rifle hunters, so there's not a lot of bulls killed on the early hunt. So, I mean, it definitely... Uh, one of the better units. 27 is a good unit. One has come on because of the recent fires. Um, but, I, you know, one of the units you mentioned that's one of the best archery units is nine, but it's not a very good late rifle hunt at all just because of the topography and the way it lays out. Next question is from The Long Claw. Can you guys talk about taking shots on a buck or bull that is lying down? I'll let you dive into that. I mean, I don't know if he, I assume he's talking about with a bow because with a gun, I mean, it's not a big deal either with a gun. I mean, I would do it for sure. Um, you just got to figure out and, and, and envision the, the path of a bullet or the path of the arrow when it hits the animal. Um, if I'm within bow range and the animal's laying there, I'm going to shoot it as long as I got an effective shot at the, at the vitals. You know, I mean, but it's just, you know, Sometimes you get those weird angles where you're shooting steep downhills or steep uphills, and you just got to envision the path that the arrow is going to take through the body when it hits the animal and kind of make sure you're getting that arrow through um, through the vitals. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things, too, is if you have a shot, I think you have to take it. I think the longer that you sit there, the longer that you stand there, the longer that you wait for that deer to get up, you know, you're kneeling on your knees or you're, you're standing or whatever you're doing, like if you've got a shot, you've got to be able to take that shot. Um, but just like Brian says, you've got to envision where that arrow is going to pass through the body and through into the vitals and kind of figure where everything's laying and, and you know, figure it all out. Uh, it, it, it can be... A little bit of a, you know, you got to definitely take your time and figure out where you're going to aim for sure. Uh, TDF underscore outdoors, glassing and spot and stock in the morning and sitting water slash bait for mule deer archery. So I guess he's asking, should I, should I glass morning and evening and then uh, sit? Um, let's see, glass. I don't exactly understand the question 100%, but I think he's asking glass, glassing and spotting stock in the morning and sitting water and bait the rest of the time. Your thoughts, Brian? I mean, if you have a buck that's hitting water, then you should be sitting water. I don't think you need to worry about glassing. Uh, if you don't have animals that are sitting, then, you know, get out there and glass the mornings and sit the evenings. I mean, it's a pretty common tactic, especially for hunting elk, is, you know, you go out, chase them in the morning when they're bugling, and then sit water in the evenings, hoping to catch one coming in for a late drink or to wallow or something like that. So, I mean, utilize whatever you're given to make the most of your opportunity. So, I mean, like I said, if they're hitting water, then go sit water and stay and stay with it. It's, you know, you just got to stay patient because the minute you leave, they're going to show up. Brian, I just checked on Instagram to make sure there weren't any more questions that came up while we've been on the podcast, and there's a couple more here. Uh, fixed sight or single pin slider, mainly hunting coos? I'm a big fan of a multi-pin mover. So, obviously, I shoot a five-pin sight that I can move. So, it, my pins are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and my bottom pin will slide all the way down to 105 on my current setup. So that's, that's what I like to shoot. Um, if you have a hard time focusing on one pin, you like to have a pin right in the middle of your housing, then, you know, shoot a single pin mover. Uh, if you're not worried about shooting past 50 yards, then there's no reason, I mean, really no reason to have a mover. Just shoot, you know, three or four pins that fit your, fit your fancy. Understand, though, that if you shoot a single pin sight, the... Um, the pin is in the middle of the housing, so therefore you're going to get a little less distance out of that site than you would if you had a multi-pin housing where the bottom pin or the pin at the, the bottom of the housing uh, will give you a little more distance out of the out of the site. Got a question, um, Manuel Cavern. He says, "Are the deer done growing by the start of the archery hunt on the strip?" I mean, every year is different. Um, I shot my deer, I think it was September 1st, and he was pretty much, I would say, done. Um, the reality of it is that, I mean, are you, you're not going to pass a big buck if he comes in and you're, the tag's open and you're ready to kill him on that archery hunt. So I would say most of them are pretty well finished out. They may have a little bit left that they could put on there. But, I mean, my experience with my velvet buck was 
he was basically done. I mean, the end of his the end of his times were were hardened. You could feel the points there. They weren't soft and mushy. Um, I do think that some of the other deer in other parts of the state have lots of room left to grow. Last question, Brian. What's the average shot when hunting with a bow on the Arizona Strip? Uh, I would definitely say that you want to be uh, capable out to, I would say, 60 to 80 yards if you're uh, able to do so. Um, my buck was 63 yards, and there was absolutely no way that I could set a blind any closer to the water than I had already done. Uh, but I, I know that the more effective you are at distance, the more the increasing your odds you're going to have with success. Just stay within whatever your comfortable range is. If you can effectively shoot 100 yards, great. Uh, if you can only effectively shoot 60, just know your limitations. Brian, thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. Uh, any last-minute uh, tips for those guys out there archery deer hunting? or, you know, any of the hunts coming up here over the next uh, month? Um, good luck to everyone. And, you know, obviously I'm part of the Bow Hunting in Arizona Record Book Committee, and we accept velvet entries into our record book. So, I mean, I would encourage any of you guys that shoot a big animal that would like to enter it in the book, by all means, get a hold of me, get a hold of Jay, and uh, we'll get it figured out and get it entered. And, you know, most of all, have fun. Enjoy it. Uh, it's going to be a great year. I think we're going to see some exceptional bucks killed this year and it's going to be pretty fun to watch yeah I, I couldn't agree more it's an exciting time for sure i know we've just been salivating all summer for this fall to start and you know it's right around the corner uh again guys thanks for all your support and uh thanks for the listeners that uh instagram followers that typed in some questions uh, we're always happy to answer your questions uh brian i appreciate uh, your friendship first off and uh, appreciate the time you always spend with us on the podcast. I know we get a lot of people wanting to hear more from you, so I appreciate that and uh, really excited about your opportunity uh, to hunt elk with your dad in September uh, in the state of Utah and then to uh, go up to Montana and get to fulfill your dream of, of shooting a moose uh, with a bow is a pretty exciting thing. So lots of cool stuff. Um, going on so yeah get after them and uh congrats on getting the bear with your wife the last couple of days that sounded like a fun hunt yeah it was a good time jay it was a good time <clears throat> i look forward to seeing what you guys produce off the hot six and uh seeing how it all shapes out but uh, if anyone has any questions for me or wants to get a hold of me they can email me it's brian.rims at hotmail.com and i'm sure jay will post it up for you and uh or send me a private message uh i'll be glad to answer whatever i can Sounds good, buddy. God bless. Take care. All right. Bye, Jay.